The entire team at the Emsolation Podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians and cultures of the lands and seas on which we live and work. We pay our respects to all First Nations peoples, elders and ancestors. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and stand in solidarity towards a shared future. I personally want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I record this podcast every week, the Wurundjeri people. I recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place I call home. Always was, always will be. This is the M Salation Summer Series. Brax was like the, the number two most popular name in Australia for, for, one, for one year. <laughs> With Stephen Peacock. Would you say it was more or less of an acting challenge than the dance sequences in season one? Oh, come on. Mate, <laughs> me up. Michael Lucas with Stephen Peacock for the M Salation Summer Series. All right, welcome to the M Salation Summer Series. Clearly, it is not M, it is Michael finally doing making some sort of contribution. I'm not a maximalist power queen. Only one person can take that token. So, yes, I'm a writer. I'm a noted podcaster. I'm going to say sidekick, but I'm going to say it with real pride because sidekicks are just my favourite characters in movies. And I'm also an absolutely appalling singer, as everyone who watched the Emsolation Christmas special probably is having some therapy to try and remove that memory. I'm so thrilled that I'm here because I'm interviewing Aussie legend Stephen Peacock, who I'm sure, look, he doesn't need much introduction because we spoke, we speak about him a fair bit anyway. And basically, look, if you were living in Australia in 2011 to 2016, then you'd know he, even if you didn't watch Home and Away, you would know he played Brax, the river boy on that show. He was on the cover of TV Week, basically. I feel like they just rotated him every third week. It had to be him. Yeah, he was, it was such a popular character. But then this past year, this past pandemic year in 2021, if you're a Stephen Peacock fan, my God, it was particularly the month of August, Melbourne and Sydney had gone into lockdown. And in one week, he released RFDS, the Channel 7 Royal Flying Doctor drama, where he starred as a flight nurse, Pete. And then on that exact same day, Five Bedroom Season 2 came out, where he played the character of Trady Ben. And then on that Sunday... The newsreader came out where he played sports reporter Rob Rickards and for that role he got an actor nomination. So it's just been this absolutely huge year for Steve. And now as we head into New Year's Day 2022, we're actually getting Five Bedrooms Season 3, which is by far the biggest season yet for his character, Ben. He kicks off the series with the contentious choice he makes that we, we get into. So, yeah, it's just absolutely prime time for Stephen Peacock. And, um, Steve, look, I didn't know what to expect when we started working with him. None of us really did. Um, because, yeah, like, obviously you look at him on screen and he seems like this salt-of-the-earth Aussie bloke. But also, you know, we were all like, yeah, but he's an actor and he's working in Hollywood. So, I mean, you know, obviously it's not real. But, oh, it's real. It's real. Like, I feel like the phrase salt-of-the-earth and phrases like true blue, they were just they were just invented for Steve. Like, he he's the only person I know of my age that can just naturally just throw around phrases like beauty 
and crikey. Like he could actually pull out crikey as just an authentic response to something. It's amazing. I mean, and I always love to ask him what he's been up to because, you know, obviously I'm here living my Northcote wanker life, you know, spending too much money on pop concerts and going to cafes and that's my life. And, um, and he's always, he lives, he lives out in the bush and uh, his day-to-day life it's just, it's, it's like something out of an Aussie Bush miniseries of the 1980s. It's incredible. He's just, I don't know, he's just, he's really humble. He's, he's so gentlemanly and polite. And he's also a really great actor. It's really easy to underestimate him because his performances, they're always just so natural and laconic. You think it's not acting. But it is, and there's masses of detail there, and he's always super well prepared. And, and then as we worked on the show, like I think everyone has this different moment that they all of a sudden they just realise, oh, my God, I've just... I think I've fallen in love with Stephen Peacock, all of us. And I remember for me, there was this moment and he was just talking about his wife, Bridget, who is just beautiful. He's been married, God, I don't know, like almost a decade now. And he's just so devoted to her. And they obviously talk through everything all the time because he's always referring to her thoughts on things. And then I just remember there's this one point where he, where he just sort of said, oh, Bridget, yeah, we're married. Obviously she's my wife, but um, she's also my best friend. And he just said it so humbly and simply and then moved on in conversation. And I was like, oh, my God, you are like you give straight white Aussie men a good name, really. And then, uh, yeah, ever since then, just unfailingly generous. And I feel like we um, – it's a bit of a coup that he's doing this because um, he keeps it, he keeps a pretty low profile. Like you won't catch him out on a red carpet. We did get him out for the newsreader at the actors, but that's only because he was like literally nominated and, and asked to present. Other than that, he doesn't go to opening of things. He's not on any social media, he lives way out of the city in the country. And, and you know, you won't even like, it's not like he's someone that pops up on the project or on Brecky telly or anything like that. And frankly, I feel like he's really just doing this because I mean, you know, I've, I am the writer and producer of two of the shows he works on, so how could he really say no to me? It's a bit orcs. So, yeah, we got him. I feel like I should say a blanket apology to M because as with our other interviews with Asha, Keddie and Kat Stewart, again, I prepared. Notably, I'm not great on the preparation in day-to-day, and then as she correctly identifies... <laughs> When I bring in someone from one of my shows, I get nervous and over-prepared. But in this instance, I did have all of these things, but he was just in this great chatty uh, mood and, and super relaxed. And he was, of course, he was calling in from from Dubbo. And so, I mean, I could see behind him and it was just, you know, unbelievable, beautiful red earth outback, just, just how you imagine Steve Peacock is going to be. But I'm here to tell you, it's not, it's real. It's the real deal. And I think you'll hear that in this interview. So as Em would say, play the music. You're listening to the Emsolation Summer Series. Here we are. Now, uh, the first thing, last time I saw you was only about a week and a bit ago at the Opera House at the Actor <laughs> Awards. And one of, the, uh, one of the things I always love to hear whenever we're not in production is uh, just what you've been up to recently because my answers are always just such inner city wanker things like going to cafes <laughs> and museums. And in the past you've answered things like defending the property against the fire front. And at one point it was like planting 180 trees or something. That was another answer. 
have, what have you been doing since the actors? Going to the chiropractor to repair my back from planting the damn trees. <laughs> <laughs> I've been actually I've been I've been doubled over with um with a bulging disc in my back so yeah no adventurous stories oh <laughs> no no actually hang on right before the actors I was out um I actually went out to out to between Burke and Louth in far northwestern north New South Wales to the place I jackarooed on when I was 18 um so I did a camping trip out there on the Darling River with the bloke I actually jackarooed with that was pretty fun but that um is about it, mate. Nothing too exciting other than that. that. Look, that's pretty exciting. You've already thrown around the world, Jack. Well, actually, so what I've done, I'm, I'm a bit overprepared. And what I've done is I've, I've got, basically I've got 10 Steve Peacock facts, which actually I'm not even 100% sure that all of them are facts, but what I'm going to do is just run through them and, we'll, and you can separate the myth from the reality. But intriguingly... My first, well, actually, it was my second one, but I'm bumping it up to number one. Out of all of the facts that I learned, this is one of the most fascinating ones. Before acting took off, you literally worked as a jackaroo on a cattle station and you're earning $3 an hour. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, I was 18. It was my first year out of school. And it was, yeah, it was a sheep and cattle station out called Torelli Station out past Burke. And I was out there for 12 months. And look, I, the manager of that place is a wonderful fella. Um, he read on Wikipedia. He said, you said you're making $3 an hour. <laughs> I, think I was, maybe I've neglected to say, is we did get a house and food and yeah. essentials like that thrown in. So it was probably more like $8.50 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> if you that if is you adjusted important. for inflation. <laughs> now, Jackaroo, like, does that mean that you're, are you on horseback? Is that what that is? Look, in days gone by, it would have been horseback mainly. And certainly if you're up in the Northern Territory or, you know, in Western Australia, you might still be on horseback. But because the place I was on was, um, it was almost a quarter of a million acres big and it was just more efficient to ride motorbikes. So, oh, um, wow. yeah, it was all done, all the mustering out there because there are about 40,000 sheep and about 10,000 cattle. And all the mustering out there was done with an aeroplane. So a bloke would be up in the sky sort of spotting the mobs of sheep and you'd be down two or three blokes would be down mustering on uh, using motorbikes, sort of herding all the sheep together. So, yeah, it wasn't as romantic as riding a, um, a horse, but, um, yeah, it was all most, mostly motorbikes. When I was See, the other thing that's confusing about Wikipedia is it sort of lists it as a job that you did while you were breaking into acting. And, and I was thinking, how did, how did he go to auditions? What the hell? How did he manage that? But, no, it was quite specifically the year after high school. It was specifically then. The only – I'd never done acting at that point still. I didn't get into it until university, but – I was, I knew at that point that I wanted to be an actor. So there was a moment, my, it was my favorite film. The film that made me want to get into acting was the film Braveheart, which came out in 1995, I think. And for whatever reason, that was the first film that just clicked with me as a, as a young man. And I did attempt the sort of the famous Sons of Scotland speech when I was riding my motorbike behind a mob <laughs> sort of 2000 sheep. And there was no one around for, you know, miles and miles and miles. So that was my first, my first little foray into performance was probably out behind a mob of um, merino sheep. Well, and they were your first audience, first devoted audience. I bet you, you killed it. <laughs> well, the nature of mustering is the sheep run away from you. So they did, they continued to run. So it wasn't exactly applause, but I guess it was some kind of 
reaction that they had to whatever the hell I said. Well, that is what, that's what William Wallace, he wanted to inspire them to start running, right, towards the enemy. Isn't that right? Isn't that what he's doing that, that speech for? 100%. That's that we'll never I, take their freedom. <laughs> that's right. I was literally leading those sheep off to their slaughter. No, I wasn't. I was, well, I was leading them off to be shorn, so they were, they were very happy sheep. But, yeah, I think I'm, I may have pioneered a new way of um, mustering livestock. Well, that... <laughs> So my second um, Stephen Peacock incredible fact was, and you've kind of answered this too, but was it that when you were growing up, your two dreams were either rugby player or actor? And in the end, acting partially won because of injuries due to rugby playing. Is that true? Um, uh, well, I, no, if I'm going to be honest, I loved playing rugby, but it was, I was, pretty, it was pretty clear from the age when I was a teenager that I was never going to set the world I like playing playing rugby, so it was something I I played until I was twenty eight. But uh, no, it was when I was in year nine or year yeah, I think year nine that I got this acting bug sort of bit me. Even though it would be years before I actually got onto a stage, but that was that just became my dream and my the thing I thought about more than than anything really. So it was it was in year nine, but yeah, rugby was always just a way to keep fit, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, because I'm going to say, uh, well, it, it was sort of hard to, because they are very, I mean, they're really requiring different things. Because at the end of the day, when I think of acting, I think it's all about listening and vulnerability, really. And rugby is just, that's very different skill set, very different aim. Yeah, yeah. It's more about, well, I used to get, the weird thing is, I used to get this crippling anxiety before I played rugby. I'd be, I'd have to. Because we always, when I was playing at university and, you know, your game, the game I'd play in was always at three o'clock, sort of the last game of the day. And and I get so nervous for the whole day. I couldn't eat for the whole day leading up to it. And I'd be so, so nervous. But then I did this play when I was at university and I'd, I had broken my shoulder from rugby. So I thought I'll give it, I'd dabble. And the first performance I did, I actually started, it was a little two-hander and I was sitting on a chair in the middle of the stage and the, the curtain sort of opened. And I remember sitting there going, well, you want to be an actor, this is the make or break moment. Either you're going to shoot yourself or it's going to be okay. And I remember feeling absolutely no nerves, which was bizarre. Wow. So I used to get more nervous before, um, before a game of footy than I did, as it turns out, before a, a, a very small audience at Newcastle University. There were probably, <laughs> to be fair, probably five people in the audience, but yeah, it was strange. That, well, I mean, I don't tend to get nervous. And yet when I was in school plays, I packed it. I, was, I couldn't sleep for nights leading up to it. So that's, that's fascinating that you didn't get nervous oh, at all. That's weird. But then, you know, we are at the actors last week. And I think we we're both saying that we're a little bit... To, to get up in a situation like that still gives me heart palpitations. So I'm, I'm all right if you're writing my dialogue. Like Michael Lucas following me around to all my social engagements, writing what I've got to say, <laughs> then I'd be I'd be all right. But I um I still get nervous about public speaking. But yeah, for whatever reason, on a set, touch wood. Yeah. And the limited theatre I've done, I, I never used to get too nervous. But how did you feel? You had to present. You 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 were saying you felt a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, it was partially. I wasn't that nervous until I had to go to the rehearsal, and then for some reason the rehearsal really made me think about what I was doing, and then I got nervous. And also because uh, I don't know whether your rehearsal was the same, but looking out and seeing all the names that I was going to be speaking to on the chairs just suddenly made me yeah. nervous. 
put me off and, and just seeing all the cameras set up and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I did. Definitely. I did. But then in the well, end, when it finally came around, actually I was just, I just felt really, really sweaty. And so all I was really thinking was, am I sweating massively? And I was just consumed with that. And I couldn't really think about anything else. And also I was really lucky because before I presented, there was an absolute disaster with Marta Dusseldorf. Do you remember that when they played the wrong thing and she was left stranded on stage for 10 minutes and I was like, Oh, well, you know, it, it, whatever happens to me is not going to be as bad as that. I know that was, that's now replaced my nightmare that I used to have of turning up to school with no gear on. <laughs> Every, everyone's had, now, now I'm just going to have flashbacks. They handled it. They handled it very well, but yeah, you're right. If that, that is often the case If someone, even if you're doing a scene, sometimes it's a bit nasty to say, but if someone stuffs their line, then all of a sudden, oh, well, they've done it now. I won't look so much of a goose. Yeah, I know. It's I terrible, isn't it? But it's true. It's like a circuit breaker for the, for the, for the tension. But um, no, I, yeah. it was funny. Before I had to go up and present mine, um, uh, and I didn't know the order of anything, but it was, I think it was Eric, Eric Banner and Matt Nabel had presented once. So when they walked off, um, you know, I was bloody starstruck because it's Eric Banner and he's one of my favourite actors. And he was very, you know, he made eye contact and said, G'day, mate. And then Matt Nabel was right behind him and he sort of grabbed me in a, in a half sort of footy tackle and said, just don't fuck it up, mate. <laughs> just as I was walking out. <laughs> so I thought, there you go. You no, you didn't. You, you're a great banter. You, 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 with Courtney Act, it was awesome. It was really well yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Courtney was good fun. She, she was great. So, yeah, anyway, that's my nerves on stage. Michael Lucas with Stephen Peacock. For the Emsolation Summer Series. And so when you're in Newcastle, was that, and when you're on stage in Newcastle, was that with Johnny Carr? Yes. Well, I think the first play that we did together was A Property of the Clan, um, which right. is obviously a Nick Enright play, was the precursor to Blackrock, the film and play. And, you know, a famous Newcastle story set in, uh, on Stockton Beach. And, yeah, I, I was playing Rico. I can't. I remember who Johnny was playing anyway. Well, we were, we were I just need to, together. let me just explain to listeners because they might, they probably know Johnny Carr better as Simo. So in five bedrooms, Steve's or his character's Ben's best mate is Simo. And as it turns out, we cast this actor, Johnny Carr, who in reality studied, was doing, was at Newcastle Uni, like, and did the drama course with you there and then appeared with you on stage. But to be clear, we had no idea that there was any connection whatsoever. And in fact, I had just seen, uh, Johnny on stage in Melbourne at the MTC and just loved him. And so that's why he, he got considered for that role and got it. And then happy accident rocked up and, <laughs> and he had this whole history with you that goes all the I way know. back to teen years. Amazing. Yeah. Early twenties. Um, oh, no, it would have been more, yeah, 19 or 20, but yeah, it was wonderful because we had to have this backstory, you know, Benny and Simo have been lifelong mates and we could literally trace a friendship back almost two decades. The weird thing was when, because I had come from this completely different background to acting and I was, I wasn't, I was doing a, studying a, like a unit of drama or something, but otherwise I was doing a completely different degree. And I think Johnny may have been the same, but we turned up to this play and audition and then worked out that we were sort of both similar, had similar interests. And we both sort of weren't from in within that sort of Rocker Stedford at school type crowd. And so we hit it off, <laughs> hit it off together really well. So it was a really good fun crowd to be in, but yeah, we kind of became mates because we were kind of both, outsiders in in that little world and then he went off to vca i think he got mm -hmm. he got he auditioned for vca and got in and i went off to start unloading freight trucks in 
<laughs> for, for five years until I got a break. But yeah, it was so cool when I saw that he was auditioning for Simo. I think, and I think Pete Templeman may have even been in one of the auditions. And I said, that must may have been one of the first times I said, you know, we were mates years ago. And, you know, obviously he knocked it out of the park yeah. in his audition. But I think it helped that we had a history there. So it was, yeah, it was opportune. Yeah, and that exact thing that might have made you slightly black sheeps in the acting class, which was, you know, I mean, you're both playing tradies and it yeah. feels incredibly authentic with you both. So yeah. it doesn't seem at all like actors playing tradies, which is part no. of the magic of it. Yeah, I know. I know. It was, I just, you know, it's like working with Doris. Majority of my scenes are with Doris. And now in this uh, season that the audience is about to see, so many of them with, with Johnny and we all, have a really good time on set but when you're working with people who have got similar sense of humor and that sort of chemistry just turning up to set is so much fun so it's good yeah, fun working with johnny johnny well it was only a pretty small little guesty role really in season one but we loved him so much and his scenes with you were so good so season by season he's got bigger and now he's just pretty much he's he is main cast like he's just yeah. and and this season he actually moves into the house so it's really six people in the house now yeah, they're some of the best scenes for sure. And especially good because you don't often see entertaining and truthful and great male friendships on screen. There's not a huge number of them that I can think of off the top of my head, but they're awesome together or you're awesome together with him. Yeah, no, they're good fun. Very good fun. So that break you referred to after, after the loading the freight was Brax in Home and Away, which basically if you're living in Australia in the first half, like from about 2011 to about 2015, 16... Yeah, really? I can never remember. I think it was around then. I I just I think I was turned twenty nine. So yeah, about yeah, that would be about right. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, he's absolute home and away hall of fame. And I know that. I mean, obviously, there's you've got your Elf and your Irene, and because they've been there decades, and Sally, people like that. Um, but in terms of like a short stay, he's pretty much. I would go so far as to say, almost mathematically, empirically, the most popular home and away character probably ever. That's just my that's my read on it, not Steve's. Even like now, and even on five bedrooms, or especially when we started, there's just something about that character. Like he was so popular, and if you were to go into a pub or something like that, people would just want to come up for selfies and to say hi and get a pitch and refer to you as Brax, right? Yes, it was a period there where, yeah, for whatever reason, that character did become popular. And I think because, you know, if your name was Sam or, or Mike or yeah. any other regular sounding names or Steve, if someone yelled out in public and you didn't feel like sort of having a photo or something, you could just keep walking because there could be another Mike or Steve. Yeah. But if someone yells out Brax, <laughs> there is no one else with that damn name. So I'd either wince and I'd give myself away and I'd have to turn around and say g'day or whatever, which is always fine, but sometimes, you know, you're in a rush. I think the reason I, I noticed it even more in, in public is because that name is, there's just not that many people. Well, there weren't that many people called Brax when I was on TV. It turns out, I remember oh, I, mum. I think he's the one said, and only. Oh yeah, did have someone ring up. But I remember mum, because mum used to be a kindergarten teacher and kids would come through and you could tell whatever the popular characters on a TV show were because all the girls would be called this or all the boys would be called that. And she rang up and said, it's in the paper that, Brax was like the, the number two most popular name in Australia for, for, one, for one year. <laughs> when I was on, so all these little kids, uh, yeah, called oh. Brax and Brax. Well, that wasn't, yeah. His name was Daryl, actually, wasn't it? I, I used to say that. People would turn up to Palm Beach and say, oh, this is little Brax, and he'd be dressed up in a flannelette shirt, <laughs> and I'd go, oh, it's good. Yeah, good on him. And, you know, they're always lovely people, but I sometimes would want to say, yeah, his, his name's actually Daryl. 
It's not quite as cool sounding as Brash. Anyway, yeah, that was, was a very funny time for someone who had gone from doing a few plays at the, the new theatre in the old pits to all, all of a sudden being on this show and having a character that was quite popular was quite bizarre. Oh yeah. And it was also, it was actually just before streaming started. So it was back when, back when like free to air TV was kind of at its absolute peak and home and away, it was like millions were watching every single night and, and demonstrably like Brax was a big draw. Like the, the seasons got bigger and bigger with him on it. So it's like these days, given how fragmented everything is and how many different streaming services there are, it's hard for a single character to get as much, (laughs) as much love as that did. And it was wild. Oh, very lucky. Yeah. Look, I, and I, you know, some people, I, I, I kind of get it. Some people, you know, when they're reminded about being on that show or on Neighbours or whatever, probably get sick and tired of it after years and years. But I, I always think if you're lucky enough to play a character that has that kind of, finds that kind of, you know, you have that sort of cut through and you become popular with an audience, then it's something to be proud of. And I loved every day of that show. It was so much fun. Mm. The people on it are fantastic. So, yeah, it was, I learned a lot doing the show and it certainly, um, it's certainly helped me to sort of establish myself as someone who could show up on time and, you know. Since then, okay, so some of the, there's so I've forgotten how many acting legends you've acted opposite against, but some of them are Tina Fey, Margot Robbie, Amelia Clark, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. That's, you've, you've actually acted with all of those people. I know, yeah, well, to be fair, when it was with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I was kind of leaning on a spear off his right shoulder for most of it but I did have I did have a few scenes I actually broke my thumb I didn't tell production at the time but one of the first scenes I did with him it was sort of this it was going to be part of a montage and he was you know this was in Hercules and he was teaching us how to fight and the director said right me get up with one of the other actors and he's going to show you how to do this this move and whatever as as as, you know the general teaching the soldiers how to how to fight and I fell down and I just he felt my thumb sort of crack but I didn't want to make a show in front of the rock so oh, I just no. sort of went home and put some ice on it and ended up with a bloody fractured thumb which I ended up having to pay for because I didn't tell the product oh, like, anyway. so how you still had to keep doing the job with a fractured thumb yeah I, I bought a brace I was over in Budapest and I remember walking into a pharmacy and said look I think my thumb's broken and it was because I got an x-rayed and I said what can you give me and they just gave me some break anyway it was fine it was one of those funny moments and then yeah I had John Hurt um uh, I got to act with Ian McShane. Oh, wow. They were oh. all on that. Um, Rufus Sewell. They were all on that set, and it was bizarre because, yeah, the the year before I'd been, you know, in Australia, and then all of a sudden I'd I'd got this American agent, and then I got the role. I got this role in Hercules, which is a whole other story, which I won't bore you with. But yeah, and then you're on set on this huge big, you know, this huge big MGM film set in Budapest with two thousand extras and. It's crazy. Yeah, a bit of a contrast. It's how, yeah, it's just weird how quickly in, and you would know how quickly in this industry you can go from looking at your phone to all of a sudden just being in the middle of some huge yeah. thing. It's crazy. It's good fun. And now, look, Tina Fey, she's both of our heroes. I mean, Mean Girls is one of the best screenplays just ever written. But in addition yep. to that, obviously, amazing comic genius from Saturday Night Live. But you, but you were working with her. She was just purely an actress, right, in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. She wasn't a writer or anything on that movie, was she? No, she wasn't. She was working alongside her really close writing partner. Ah. I not think of his name. But she was producing, I think, so she had a bit of skin in the game of, you know, the way everything was running. But yeah, otherwise, she, I don't think she was writing. She was just there as an actor and obviously was number one on the call sheet. And 
you know, they're, they're the standard bearers for any production I've, I've since realized. And she was fantastic. You could not, if you're a Tina Fey fan, as you are, and I certainly am, you could not hope for her to be a nicer, more modest, unassuming person. She was so fun to work with. And I was, I was nervous there, actually, talk, talking about nerves before. I remember walking to set behind her and, and Martin Freeman, who, like, the oh, yeah. is my favorite show of all time. Uh, uh, my first, one of my first scenes was with both of them. And oh, I remember just being so nervous going, gosh, don't, stop, don't stuff these up. But yeah, it was fantastic. She was great. I guess if she was producing stuff, she would have had sort of some form of casting say in you. Maybe. Did she? Did you have to do a chemistry test with her or anything? No, I auditioned bizarrely. I did the first audition in Sydney and then I was up visiting my brother in Darwin and I had to do a Skype test from his house in Darwin with the director and it was this horrible lag in the, in the, you know, when oh, you get that, that yeah. horrible lag. And I remember getting off and just going, well, that was just a bloke looking into the, you know, looking into his iPhone, trying to hear what the other person was saying. It was nothing to do with the performance. And I thought, well, I've blown that. There's no way I'll get it. And then I got it. So I think either it was a sort of Stephen Bradbury moment where a number of other people pulled out and they just said, get that idiot from Australia. Or she saw me and said, he's the next super. <laughs> I think so. No, well, it's odd how often people, <laughs> friends I know, when they really think for some whatever reason they've screwed up an audition, they're the great ones. And conversely, sometimes when they come out going, I really reckon I've got a good feeling about that one. I really reckon often it doesn't pan out that way. But I remember Sarah Snook with Succession when she, she only looked at the scene late and the, and the just character description was like Ivanka Trump or something. And she was like, I'm not, I'm not that. This isn't going to work. And she was on a beach holiday or something. So she couldn't even get dressed up or anything. So she just kind of did this quick audition and thought, I'm, I'm never, ever, ever going to get that. And and then now, you know, now she's like four years in. And I know. And one of the most popular shows on television or the most popular show now, and one of the, it will probably go down as one of the most popular shows ever. It's crazy. Yeah. And she thought she blew it. I remember walking, going into Fox Studios at, at Sydney, the audition house to do my audition for Ben in five bedrooms. And my wife, Bridge, she waited. And I remember getting out in the car going, fuck it. This is a character I should absolutely know. And the whole way home, just going, that's it. I'm going to let, if I can't, do something that well written and that perfect for me, then bugger it. I'm going to quit. And I just, it was one of those, it was one of those moments where I'd rehearsed it with her and it all felt good. And then I, I just felt like the wheels fell off when I went in there. But you know, it's like you say, the ones you think you've absolutely hit for six, you'd never hear back from. And when you think you've been um, not your best, you often get them. And the weird thing is sometimes when we're on set, the scenes where you walk away and you think, ah, oh, yeah, that, now I know what I'm doing. Like we're really firing on all cylinders. You'll watch them back and, you know, they won't be your favourites. And the ones where you felt terrible, you came home and sort of, God, what am I doing in this job? They are the ones that turn out the best. So I, I think I just learned not to trust my own judgment of when I'm doing something well. <laughs> listen to other people. Oh, look, I wouldn't entirely ignore it, although listening to other people is good. But I still, re I vividly remember that test. And I also remember, I mean, this probably sounds a little bit unprofessional, but when we're considering casting someone, often I'll show M and my mum. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just really good to just, I don't know, play the scene to someone who's not, you know, in the weeds with it or something like that, just to get an instant yeah. gut reaction. And particularly if it's like sort of like a male romantic lead as well. And I still remember they both had the exact point. There was this particular point where you weren't actually auditioning with Doris, but it was a scene that, that she was going to play. And there was this particular point where you smiled and both my mum and M watching it separately went, oh yeah, no, yeah. 
Got it. <laughs> I think all I've got to do now is work out a way to get your mum and M into the casting studios of um, like Paramount Pictures and get them over to America and get them in the ears of the casting people. Yeah. Oh yeah. My mum's pretty huge fan. Pretty huge fan. It was not her era of home and away. So you're fresh to her pretty much for five bedrooms. She's been pretty devastated actually because of the pandemic. She's been waiting for so long for a set of visit and it's never happened. Yeah. I hope Benny doesn't disappoint her. No, well, so anyway, that brings up, yeah, so season three, Christine, who writes that, and myself, we basically shat ourselves for about six months because, because we were worried that you might hate Ben's storyline. The reason we were worried is because it was this one time at the end of one of the Melbourne's lockdowns where we went to dinner with Doris, who plays Heather, and Kat was there. And I went in saying, oh, I'm not going to say anything about the storylines. But then, of course, I had like three drinks and all of a sudden <laughs> I was spilling everything. And for season three, we're not giving anything away because it's been pretty much in the trailer. But let's just say that Ben yeah. makes a morally ambiguous choice that kicks off the whole season. I remember pitching it and around the table they all went, <gasps> and then Kat sort of looked at me and said, does Steve know? And I went, no, I, we haven't told him. And she went, oh, okay, I'll be interested. And, and so from then on, we basically stressed for six months thinking, wow, what if he's got a real big problem with it? And then also, then we like had these endless discussions about, should we forewarn him or should we just send it cold? And then in the end, we decided it's, you know, it's better to just send the script because then he can read it in context. If he just hears the headline, it might prejudice. But then it was the biggest non-event ever. You just read and said, great, up for it. Great. Yeah, I know. Well, I've been lucky to work with some, some you know, good, good people. And I always just think, look, that's not my lane to be running in. If you've got good people writing and they've got this good idea for an overarching storyline, and, you know, there are some things, to be fair, that I, auditions where I've said, I can't play that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to show up to work. I, acting's hard enough already, but playing a character or doing something that you don't want to be doing, it's just not what I want to do. So I, I am a little bit like that with auditions and stuff, stuff that I'll go for. But when with, with you and Christine, I know that everything's turned out so well and the audience is always, you can always understand why the characters on our show do what they do. And I figured that he's doing something that's pretty big, no doubt about it. But it's certainly, you see how he's got himself into that situation. And knowing the type of free-spirited person he is leading up to it, you can see how things happen. And it made sense to me. So I thought, no, nah, go with it. It'll be fun. And, you, you know, he was, he couldn't have him being too, too bloody, uh, too sort of, not squeaky clean. He's never squeaky clean, but, you know, he's always sort of, turning up yeah. on the right side of things. It was good to see the wheels really fall off for him because, um, <laughs> and you know, acting wise, they're great because it gives you something to, to fight back, you know, to, to sort of play against, to try and win back people's affection or, you know, to hope that the audience will see it from your point of view. And it was all in the, in the writing. So I'll, was it, I'll would you it. say it was more or less of an acting challenge than the dance sequences in season one? Oh, come on. Right, you're winding me up. Yeah, for, for people who don't know, Mike, he comes across as such a nice <laughs> fella, but it's a sword hanging over my head each time I turn up. That he's either going to have me dancing, or bloody maybe even no, there's no more nudity. No, no there's more no more nudity. No, but the dancing. So season one, the scripts, the first half of the series was already written, and there were these two big dance sequences. There's one dance sequence where you had to imitate Maddie Ziegler from the Chandelier video clip, oh, and another no, one that was like a full, like seducing Doris Yanane whilst doing house cleaning, 
and they were already in the scripts. So, so yeah. <laughs> he had no choice. See, in my, my narrative at the end, because you were really lovely at the end when you finally saw the show, you said, look, I just want you to know that, I, you know, if, 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 if you think dancing is what you should be doing, then I will do it because I can see that it worked out well. Although weirdly, we've never done it since then. I don't know why. No. Good reminder yeah. that we should think about a way. <laughs> well, I almost put my foot in it the other day on set when I said, when jo Johnny and I were sitting around between scenes or whatever, joking that Benny and Simo had an old covers band. Yeah, I know oh, that was that was an unbelievable <laughs> unforced <laughs> error on your that. part. Because yeah, all actors have to be careful what they reveal to me because it'll end up in the script. And you don't like Cat <laughs> Stewart once said she was had a really really embarrassingly bad run, and then I just make her run all the time now. And um, <laughs> and then Steve apparently with you know nervous about doing any kind of musical sequences for some reason in a show that I just want to say actively we do flashbacks, we really do flashbacks. He actually says in our backstory, they had a bad cover band. I mean, what were you thinking I was going to do? I haven't picked up on it yet. But uh, one no, day. Why did I remind you? Foolish why did you remind me? Because I don't think you've been recorded singing on screen yet. So. Uh, for good reason. I can, sing, <laughs> I can sing A Boy Named Sue because that's basically a spoken word Johnny Cash song. But outside of that, anything where you've got to keep a rhythm or harmony, I sound pretty terrible but so, so do i so do i i'm absolutely awful but um but that doesn't stop me whereas it does wisely stop you <laughs> mm -hmm. yes yeah no i've been very very careful to avoid any kind of karaoke parties or anything like that but anyway i'll <laughs> leave it with you mike i'll leave it to your better thank you you haven't let me down so far all right so do you know that the cast and crew of five bedrooms led by cat stewart have been known to refer you as a unicorn are you aware of that um no, if, not, if you're ringing, if it's ringing a bell once the, the character Ben. No, the reason with that was because you'd worked mostly in Sydney or, or all in Sydney, I would say, and then LA, and it was mostly a Melbourne-based production. So with a couple of notable exceptions, Pete Templeman, the director, had worked with you and obviously Johnny Carr had, but your unknown quantity. <laughs> and then in all honesty, we just could not believe how humble and sort of low maintenance, no ego, we just couldn't, it just didn't make any sense to us. How you could have like been Brax on Home and Away and win all those Logies and then go to the Hollywood films and it just didn't make any sense. And Cat Stewart was one of the first to call it going, he's a unicorn, he's a unicorn. Doesn't, still to this day, doesn't make any sense. Although I, now I've got solid theory on what it is. And oh, I think, yeah, exactly. Okay. Firstly, there's just like biological, like some people are just naturally more humble. And I reckon probably, I think you might have an older brother as well. Is that right? Yeah, that, correct. Yes. Country, older, brother, country yeah. older brother, that'll keep you humble. But the, I reckon my number one theory, apart from all of the above, is, and it's something that a few of us have this on the show, like Christine, who writes it, and me, and Peter Templeman, and Cat Stewart which is didn't really get any career success in the chosen field until around 30. So a lot of the twenties spent in sort of severe anxiety about whether you were good <laughs> enough to go ahead. And once you've yeah. logged up a solid decade feeling that way, then you never truly can. You just can't become too much of an egotistical asshole. Not that oh, you would you're... anyway. No, no, I think you're, I think all the reasons, you're pretty bang on for all, all those reasons. A, I'd be cut down very, very quickly if I showed any kind of um, ego at home or amongst my mates. But I think you're right. Yeah. Until age 28, I was sweating over every damn paycheck I got and bill because I didn't know. Yeah, you know, I moved out of home when I was 18. I was always paying rent all through uni. 
mm. all through up until I got that job. And I remember dad saying, oh, you know, because he's pretty old school, my dad. And he said, have a go at this acting thing. But if you hadn't made it, they haven't got, you know, had any success by 30, then you, you have to rethink it, you know. And I had the exact same day, 30. Oh, really? 30. And it was for me. I got Offspring at 30. It was, the, it was that exact year that it happened. And it's also just working, like watching all your friends start to, you know, get proper jobs and actually earn money and buy houses and stuff. And for me, it was hospitality. And I was just still <laughs> waiting tables. Not that there's like, obviously that's brilliant if you're into hospitality, but I was bad at hospitality. And I was always like, you just couldn't even trust me to take an order. So I was pretty much just clearing plates. And still to this day, I will never, like, I'm still really conscious of every time I'm at a restaurant or a cafe. Yeah, it's very easy for me to put myself in the shoes of any person that's serving me or anything yeah. like that. Totally. I, yeah, I think that you're bang on. If it's taking you a while to, to get there, you just do not take for granted how good it is. I remember the first, one of the first things when I got that home and away job, I had to go in and get a haircut and do a wardrobe fitting. And mm. I remember seeing the week after that my agent sent through the, you know, payslip or whatever. And it said I'd been paid, I don't know, a hundred, hundred bucks or something to go. And I said, I just got paid to get a haircut. And I was unloading shipping containers at that time. And the money I had been paid to go in and get a haircut was more than it was for a 70 foot <laughs> shipping container. And I just thought, right, I can't let this go. <laughs> I can't, can't tell anyone about this job because it's like a dream. You're getting paid to get your haircut. And, I don't think that's ever left, left me. You just think when you're on a film set and, you know, there's food there at lunch and oh, yeah. you're working with everyone and everyone, it's like this perfectly working, intricate. It's like they're watching the inside of a, of a clock working. Everything's working in unison and everyone, uh, the sets I've worked on at least, especially in Australia, there's just enough of people taking the piss for it to be fun and good fun. <laughs> everyone is super on the ball and knows their stuff. And it's such a fun Working environment, I would just hate to think that I'd ever be someone who took it for granted or look like they, they didn't feel very, very lucky to be there. So, yeah, I think you're right. If you've, if you've sweated for long enough when you get a, a good gig, you sort of go, I'll just enjoy it while I'm here because you never know, you know, you never know when the next gig will be. That's right. And the appeal of free food that someone else has paid for just will never go away. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so true. But you know me, I've got a because I've got absolutely no off switch when they with that catering, some, most of the time I've got to put that awesome food into a lunchbox and take it home. Yeah. Just so after lunch, I'm not like the python who's just <laughs> swallowed the whole elk flying there. <laughs> There's no continuity in the scenes because it's like, what? how has how's he gained five kilos in between this moment and that? <laughs> and he's off hibernating under a tree. I have no self-control because I don't have to appear on camera. So when I come to set, I just can't not have the desserts and everything like that. So you can visibly track me as the season goes on. Cat Stewart's given me some good tips for how to manage it. Um, oh, I she's had to talk to Kat. Well, she just says the breakfasts. Don't do the breakfasts because mm, that, that's yeah. where you really put yourself on the wrong course for the day <laughs> because yeah, there's right, just yeah. piles of bacon and hash brown. And it's just really easy. And also you're a bit tired. It's always early. So, yeah. yeah good point. Good tip. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. She could have told me that three years ago. <laughs> no, you're very disciplined. You barely eat. You, you went through a period of time where you didn't, you sort of barely ate anything on set. And then I have noticed recently there's a little bit, you're more, a little bit more likely to have some lunch. When they bring out the lamb chops, someone, someone, <laughs> someone told them that oh, that's my, that's my kryptonite. But yeah, I, I, for whatever reason, I work better on an empty stomach. But I told you, sheepdogs will work better on an empty stomach. 
some blokes, you know, will just lay off the food. If there's, if there's a lot of yard work to be done, they'll just lay off the food the day before because they, they work better when they're a bit hungry. Yeah. And I would liken myself to a... Um, <laughs> Sheep dog. A fair to middling Kelpie dog. Not a brilliant one, but one that can get the job done. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's the most perfect note to end the interview on. I can't believe you brought it back to another just unbelievable trademark Steve Peacock observation that I would never be able to make. So thank you. <laughs> and, um, oh, and hopefully dear. i'll see you in 2022 i mean it's going to be 2021 is for the stephen peacock fan going to be particularly august 2021 was so wild when you had rfds and five bedrooms and newsreader all come out but fingers crossed i'm sure there's going to be further peaks to come but that was an extraordinary moment especially with sydney and melbourne in lockdown it was like you were personally entertaining the nation <laughs> <laughs> I know. I won't put anyone through that again. I don't think. But, but look, mum and dad I loved, loved it. it. it, was more, it was oh, more, so did my mum. Mum and dad. Mum and dad had seen me in, in probably ten years because every time they turned on the telly, it was yeah. my mug. Yeah. But, well, listen, mate. Thank you for writing. Thank you for writing all the bloody good words for me to say. I I, I don't want to I don't want to undersell what I do too much. But I seriously think if you and Christine write the words, and you know you turn up with the directors we've got. It's basically just not tripping over stuff and I look half decent. So thank you, man. Oh, no, our pleasure. You're very welcome. And hopefully there'll be heaps more to come. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right. Well, thank you again and see you in next year. See you in 2022, mate. Have a great Christmas and yeah, thanks for the yarn. Brilliant. This is Insulation. How good was that? Hello there. It's uh, Benjamin Wosley again, the executive producer of Emsolation with M. Rossiano. I'm sitting in a rather echoey room. I haven't got a blanket over me. I'm visiting my parents in Adelaide, basically. And M is, she doesn't need to take the time out to do these closes. I've jumped in to do them for her so she can have a bit of a break. That's what this summer series is all about. How good was Michael Lucas's chat with Mr. Stephen Peacock? My God, what an amazing fella. A true and utter unicorn, now that you know what that means. Um, still to come on Thursday, Em will be back chatting with Melissa Leong from MasterChef. That is an amazing conversation. You cannot miss it. So much insight, and it's such an extensive conversation as well. Make sure you're tuning in on Thursday to check that out. And, of course, there'll be more uh, in coming weeks on Thursdays as well. And we will, and we will remind you, I'm having trouble talking, uh, <laughs> that you can also now rate m with M. Rossiano on uh, Spotify. So if you are yet to do that, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating. All you need to do is go to the uh, m page on Spotify and click the three dots, which will bring up Rate This Show, and then you can put in your five stars. That would be fabulous. In the meantime, stand by for Melissa. Leong from MasterChef with M. Rossiano this Thursday. And in the meantime, have a wonderful day. Emsolation with M. Rossiano is a Spotify exclusive podcast hosted by M. Rossiano with Michael Lucas. Executive produced by Benjamin Wosley. Produced by M. Rossiano. Edited by Ezekiel Fenn at Entente Music. With videos by Liam O'Brien. Socials by Marcella Rossiano Barrow. With assistance from Jem Evans 
Evans and Georgia Watts, plus occasional technical wizardry, wine and coffee from M's Dad Vinci. Get more M Solation by following the M Solation podcast on Instagram, where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can join other M Solators at the M Solation group on Facebook. The answer is Harry Styles. If you love what we do, share this podcast with a friend and make sure you're following us on the Spotify app. Thanks for taking time out to listen to this week's episode and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you.